Great to have a few people here. Thank you guys. And this team has been great supporting us. And I'm so grateful for you guys. And, and for everyone joining us via live stream and Zoom, um, we are grateful for you. And we're grateful for this technology. We're learning how to use it. So uh, I hope it serves. And please let us know if there's any way we can do this better. Uh, thank God we actually have the example of churches in China that went through this earlier. And that's part of how we're uh, making these choices to what we do and how we do it, learning from them. And thank God for his words. Uh, he has given us his word to teach us and prepare us and to instruct us through this. And so we're going to be in Exodus chapter 17 this morning. Um, if you're new here, we're glad you're joining us. We pray God's blessing on you. Um, this crisis has made us freshly aware of what has always been true. We desperately need the Lord. And he is good. He wants to give himself to us. And, and that's our uh, great hope. And it is a truth in scripture. Uh, my name is Paul Buckley. I'm one of the pastors here and I get to bring God's word on most Sundays. So you can be turning to Exodus chapter 17. We'll be reading through verses 8 uh, through 16. We will project it, but it's better to have a Bible right in your hands so you can see in, on the page uh, what's written and, and get to know God's word better. Let me ask as you're turning there, have you ever been in a situation where you have felt helpless? Ever been in a place where you feel entirely vulnerable and unable to do anything to make the situation right. Um, I've had this happen a number of times in my life. I remember one uh, very poignant time when our oldest, Daniel, he was about two years old, and he got uh, croup. And it was really bad. It was really bad croup. Um, and the croup is an infection of the upper respiratory area, the, the bronchial area, and so forth. And during the night, he, uh, it got really bad. He was having trouble breathing. And we were, you know, we were doing everything we were supposed to do, uh, but it just got worse and worse. And so we turned on the shower uh, and got the steam going because we were told that, that was one of the things to do uh, and took him into the, the shower area and had him breathe the steam and it didn't, didn't help and his breathing continued to be bad. And then um, I also knew that cold air can help. And so uh, this is wintertime and I uh, grabbed him and I had him actually out our window. We were living on the second floor and I had to get him out in the cold air as quickly as possible. And, holding him out the window, hoping the cold air would work, and it, it wasn't working. And at that moment, um, I felt entirely helpless. Um, here was my boy, from what I could tell, maybe uh, breathing his last, and I couldn't do anything. Um, I felt totally helpless, and, and, and it was uh, a terrible feeling, a hard feeling. Now, if you guys know Daniel, he's a grown man now, and he made it. We rushed him to Children's Hospital. We lived about two miles from the hospital. Got him there, and they got him on um, an inhalant and so forth, and he was, ended up being okay, and we're grateful for that. But, but I just remember that feeling, that feeling of total helplessness and feeling so vulnerable and unable. And I imagine in this crisis, the COVID crisis, many of us are having those feelings. We feel helpless. We feel unable to do anything, and, and we watch things happen or we anticipate things happening, and we feel helpless. Well, God loves us, and he's for us, and he's given us his word that he might equip us for these struggles, that we might know truths that are bigger than the circumstances. And this passage today is a wonderful passage that teaches us that God fights for us. God fights for us. So let's pray. We'll dig into his word, and I trust through this, learn this wonderful truth that we so need to hear. Lord, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the truth 
behind your word because your word is really you expressing who you are. And you are a God that fights for your people. You are there for us and, and we needn't feel helpless. Certainly in ourselves we might feel helpless, but you are for us, you fight for us. And I pray through this passage, through teaching it and proclaiming it, Lord, that we would hear from you and we would hear even your voice, Holy Spirit speaking to us, saying, I fight for you. So be at peace. Trust me. So Lord, help me as I teach your word. Help us to listen and help us to be changed by it. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Chapter 17, verse 8 and to the end. It says, Then Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. So Moses said to Joshua, Choose for us men and go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses told him and fought with Amalek, while Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. Whenever Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed. And whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands grew weary. So they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it. While Aaron and Hur held up his hand, hands, one on one side and the other on the other side. So his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. And Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the sword. Then the Lord said to Moses, Write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called the name of it, The Lord is my banner, saying, A hand upon the throne of the Lord, the Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. God's word from Exodus chapter 17. This passage teaches us that God fights for us. So let's dig in and look at it. Uh, the truths that are here first, we see uh, that God fights for us, fights for his people. The passage starts out with a statement, then Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. Now, you guys have been following along in this series here, and, and you've seen Israel go from one problem to another. This is the time after the Red Sea was parted. They've been delivered from the Egyptians wonderfully at the Red Sea as they were trapped between the Egyptian army and the terrible ocean. God made a way where there wasn't a way. They went through it, and now they're journeying in the desert uh, to Sinai. They're going to arrive at this mountain, Mount Sinai, where God's going to make a covenant with them. But this is the time period in between. It's about, I think it's about two months or so uh, that they're journeying. And in this journey, they're encountering problems, and then they're experiencing God's solution. And some of these problems are really serious. We talked about last week these dire needs that they're dealing with. Um, they're without water. And you can only go so many days without water. So they're without water and they, they need water and they face this dire need. They're without food after, uh, I think it's what, about a month or so, a month and a half. They run out of food, of course, and they need food. They're hungry. Then they're out of water again. And we see in the story, God providing for them and, and really teaching them to cry out to him in their dire need, to not grumble, not to blame Moses, but to trust God and to wait on the Lord, to, to learn the lessons he has through these trials. It's a real picture, uh, by the way, of what's going to come later. Exodus doesn't get into this. Exodus goes from basically Egypt to Mount Sinai. 
uh, and what's going on there. But the book of Numbers covers what happens later. And, and if you read in Numbers, you'll see that actually they spent a whole generation journeying through the wilderness, learning these same lessons. But in Exodus, it's all compressed into ba basically two months. And it's a picture of walking with God. I could take time to take you to the book of Acts, and we could walk through the book of Acts, and you'll see the same sorts of things. The, the early church experiencing the new life through the death and resurrection of Christ, wonderful miracles, transformation, wonderful things happening all around, a massive amount of people coming to faith in Christ, and yet struggle after struggle. Yet, if you follow the book of Acts, you'll see God comes in with an answer each time. And so this is a picture. This is a picture of the Christian life. Scripture makes it clear that following God doesn't mean you no longer have problems. You might experience miracles and great victories in him, but there are still going to be problems. That's what happened with Israel. They experienced the miracle of deliverance from Egypt and the part in the Red Sea, and yet they still hungered and thirst, and now they're attacked by Amalek. So the Scripture makes it clear that following God doesn't mean there are no problems, but it does mean that the ultimate problem solver is with us and for us. And this latest problem is Amalek. Now, Amalek is not one person. It's a group of people, like a tribe. There's not much detail in the story, actually, about Amalek. Uh, I think that's for a couple reasons. One is the focus here is not on Amalek, but on God and his solution that he brings. Secondly, also, this was written for the people of God as they got ready to enter the Promised Land. And there are other books that go into more detail. So actually in Deuteronomy 25, we can read about this same attack. Verse uh, 17 through 18, chapter 25, it says, Remember what Amalek did to you on the way as you came out of Egypt, how he attacked you on the way when you were faint and weary and cut off your tail, those who were lagging behind, and he did not fear God. So we learn that this attack came as they were weary, as they were... Uh, hungry and, and needed water and so forth and faint. And it, it was a vicious, unprovoked attack on the most vulnerable. They attacked the, the tail of, of the march of people, the group of people as they journeyed through this, the wilderness, a large group. They, they sniped them on the back. They picked the, the back of the, the group in a merciless way, an unprovoked way, having probably known about all the miracles of God as well. So this was not just an attack on God's people, but an affront to God. It says uh, he did not fear God. We learn elsewhere in Judges, too, about Amalek. Uh, if you read in Judges, you read about them doing raids. And, and they were uh, master riders of camels. And uh, I just learned this fact this week, actually. I never knew that camels actually, in a sprint, are faster than horses, even like a racehorse. And in the desert, um, you know, you, camels are a thing to have because it can go a long ways without water. And then it's really fast in a sprint. And so the uh, Amalekites, the Amalek, people of Amalek, Amalekites, were masters of riding camels. So what's going on here is the people are journeying, they're minding their own business through the desert, on their way to Sinai to make this covenant, and this, these raiders are coming, uh, on their camels likely, attacking and sniping those at the back, the weakest, the most vulnerable. And so it's a brutal, it's a vicious and godless attack. And so God responds to that uh, very clearly. So this is one other problem that they have. They've had lack of water, lack of food, and now they're being attacked. And yet God is sovereign over this. 
God allows there to be dire needs that he might teach us about his provision. So this story is going to be about how he fights for us. We're going to see how he does it. And, and there are a lot of lessons to learn in it. But we need to know that he fights for us, that he is for us, he's with us. He doesn't leave us in our dire need. He brings solutions. Sometimes those dire needs are things like hunger and thirst. Sometimes it's attack. And sometimes those sorts of difficulties can feel, just feel more intense, can make it harder for us to believe God. We can maybe believe God for the things that are maybe more passive, the, the need for food or water, but when someone's attacking us, we can perhaps think that, that we need to do something, run away and hide, or, or fight on our own, and this passage is given to us to, to teach us that God fights for us, that we might lift our eyes to him and look to him, because the reality is, is that we're all tempted to respond in different ways when we're attacked, when, when somebody has something against us and attacks us for, for whatever reason, we tend to, to react two different ways. We either want to fight in our own strength, so there can be self-reliance and, and anger, or we want to flee. And, and, and in that, we, we can be fearful. Uh, we can end up being full of bitterness and hurt and cynicism. And you really see those two reactions among people. And, and a lot of us tend one way or the other, but I think we all go both ways, depending at times on the situation where we, we either fight in our own strength, we're angry, or we're and bitter, and maybe cynical. And the reality is, guys, that for some of us, these things define our lives. The attacks that we have had on us throughout our life and our responses can end up defining us rather than God himself. And so this story is here for our rescue, that we might learn to put our hope in him and to fight his way, allow him to lead us in how to respond. And there, there is lots of truth in this passage and elsewhere in Scripture that teaches us how to, to be part of his response. So I, I have to tell you that my trend in life is to fight back on my, in my own strength. That's where I tend to lean. Matter of fact, it happened for me at a very young age. Uh, I can't really remember how old I was. I think I might have been as young as five, probably about six when I actually uh, had, to fight, I had to learn to fight in my neighborhood, I was attacked by other kids that were around my age. I had uh, one kid come at, with his friend come after me with, with hedge clippers. Um, I had uh, a, a gang of kids down the street coming after me with, with these long sticks. They, one of their fathers had cut down saplings, and they were like, well, f in my memory, they were like 10 feet long. They probably were like 4 feet, but I was a little. And they, a group of them attacked me and my friends, and I had to actually... Uh, fight them off and to, to protect myself and my friend. So I'm like six years old, and I'm learning how to fight and really in my own strength. And I have to say, sadly, that that response marked my life as I went through life. I learned to rely on violence to try to fix things. Uh, and I would resort to violence, not easily, but when I did, I would go all the way. I had a very classic Irish temper. And it got me in a lot of trouble, uh, literally. It got me, almost got me killed a couple times. Um, and it led to many things that I deeply regret. And it took me a long time as a Christian to learn not to rely on violence. And I can t that's another story I can tell you about that. Um, I've had to learn to trust the Lord and, and to let him fight his way. Uh, but to know that he fights for us. Because I think sometimes the reason we do these things is we don't understand that he fights for us in his way. 
And so we think we have to take it into our own hands, or we think we have to run away and hide and, and don't have something that he would call us to do. And this passage teaches us that he fights for us. He teaches us to trust in him and to, and to fight his way. Now, I need to explain, too, that that looks differently in the New Testament than the Old. In the Old Testament, under the Old Covenant, the people of God as a political entity were, were the people of God. And their spiritual enemies were political enemies. They were other other countries that attacked them. And so God fights for them by, by using different means, like in this story, and we see other stories elsewhere, to protect them and to fight against the enemies and to deal with these enemies. In the New Testament, it's different because now the people of God are not a political entity, but a spiritual entity. And, and it's comprised of people from all nations, all tribes and tongues. And God is working to redeem people from every group out there. And our enemies are no longer political enemies. They're spiritual enemies. They're really the, the, the enemies, the devil and his horde. So Ephesians 6 helps us understand what the fight looks like in the New Testament. And so it says in, in chapter 6, verses 10 and following, Finally be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So these verses teach us that, one, uh, that God gives us strength to fight with this armor. So he gives us strength, right? Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. He gives us strength to fight. And, he, and how do we do it? We put on the whole armor of God that we might be able to stand. So, so he gives us strength, he equips us, and we stand against whom? The devil, right? Our, our, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, the authorities, the cosmic powers over this present darkness. We wrestle against the enemy, which is the devil and his minions, so it's, it's different, and that just that has to influence how we read Exodus in this battle. Um, and we can still apply the same sorts of things, but through that grid. It's also important for us to understand Ephesians 6, 10 through 20, is not saying, guys, here's the armor. You've got these pieces laying around. Put them on, and you'll be strong. It doesn't quite work that way. Now, we certainly are to put on the armor, but you need to understand the connection in Ephesians 6 to what God had said previously, actually in Isaiah, in a couple of places in Isaiah. I won't read them all. But it says in Isaiah 59, it talks about this armor. So let me just read it and then uh, talk a little more about what it means. It says, uh, he saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no one to intercede. Speaking of God and his Messiah, the chosen king, God in the flesh, Jesus. Then his own arm brought him salvation and his righteousness upheld him. He put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. According to their deeds, so he will repay wrath to his adversaries, repayment to his enemies. To the coastlands, he will render repayment. So they shall fear the name of the Lord from the west and his glory from the rising of the sun. For he will come like a rushing stream which the wind of the Lord drives. And a redeemer will come to Zion. To those in Jacob who turn from their transgression declares the Lord. This passage is speaking about Jesus. And it, it says a couple important things. First, there was no one else there to do the job. No one else was faithful. No one else 
was able to fight the battle, the ultimate battle that needed to be fought. No one else was able to take up this role as the King and Messiah. And so God Himself took on flesh in Jesus and, and put on this armor that is just part of who He is in His person and in His righteous deeds. And He accomplished salvation. He fought the fight on His own for us. So the armor that we put on as Christians is not our armor. It's Jesus' armor. It's who He is and what He's done. And so we're not fighting in our own strength. We're not fighting in just doing certain things in terms of methods. And, you know, if we pray a certain way, that's effective. Now, certainly we should pray. But ultimately, everything in Ephesians 6 is grounded on what Jesus has already done. We could take time, we won't today, just to go through Ephesians 6 and, and see how it's all connected to the good news of Christ, His person and work. He is the one who's fought already. And we, when we put on the armor, we are simply appropriating what He has done. We're remembering it, and we're applying it to our lives, and we're appropriating it. We're living in it and by it. We're remembering that He's shed His blood for us. He paid for our sins. We're remembering that He's given us power in the Holy Spirit to live a new life in His truth and in His goodness. We, we live by His power with us and we pray with that in mind. And so it goes on and on that way. So that's really important to get. And it's also really important to get that, that this was done when you had no ability nor any interest in fighting evil. So you were utterly helpless when this was accomplished by Jesus. Christ came and did it Himself. We were weak and unable and uninterested when He came to the cross. Romans 5 makes this clear. It says, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, unable and unwilling, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by His blood, much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. For if we, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, how much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by His life? That's how the armor works. He did it for us when we were unable and unwilling. And what we simply do is live in that reality. We remember it. We appropriate it. We live by it. We share it with others. And that's what's effective. Because there's, a, a, of course, a more important battle than, than a, a battle with a political entity. There's the battle with the enemy. There's the battle with our own sin. And death itself. And the most important battle is, is that battle. And that battle has been won by Jesus through His death and resurrection. He's conquered sin. He's conquered death. He's conquered the enemy. The enemy no longer has rights over us through sin and death. And so we remember and we live in this victory. We appropriate it. We wait on its, its fullness because the fulfillment of all its implications is coming in the future. He's for us now. He works all good for us now in this wonderful gospel. But He will finish that work finally when He returns. So we live in what He's done and who He is. That is the armor. That's how He fights for us. That's the ultimate fight that's most important 
and it's the one that is one in Christ. So we live in Him because of what He's done. He fights for us. You are not alone. He is with you. He's for you. He has fought for you. He will fight for you. Now it's interesting to go through the passage to see how this works. It's not just that He fights for us. He also fights through us. Notice in the story, as, as you go through it, there's this mixture of natural and supernatural means. So the Malachites attack Moses, and, and Moses talks to Joshua. Now, you might think, you know, well, I'm not sure if that was the right thing to do, because earlier on we know it got, in, uh, got Moses into trouble when he did that. But from what we read here, this is different. Moses isn't just talking to Joshua. From the plan that he tells Joshua, it, it seems pretty clear that he's been told by God what to do. There's a very specific plan that's been given. And so when he talks to Joshua, he's already talked to God, and he's bringing this plan to Joshua. But it's interesting, he talks to Joshua. Joshua is, by the way, a new character, right? We haven't met him previously in Exodus. This is his, this is his premiere in the story. And Joshua is a, a Benjamite man. He's from the tribe of Benjamin. He's a young man. He's Moses' assistant. And later on, he's going to be his successor. Again, this was written first for the people of God as they were ready to enter the land. So they, they would have been listening and they would have uh, recognized Joshua. They already knew him. So as they heard the story, like, yeah, Joshua, no, you're, you're on the scene. Uh, so they understand who Joshua was. And, and Joshua was an important person in the, in the storyline. He's this assistant, and he's going to be the commander of this first army, the first army of the Israelites. And, and though they weren't ready to fight an all-out war with the Philistines, they are ready for this, for this conflict. And so Moses talks to Joshua and says, choose men and go fight. So interesting, right? This is God fighting for them. This is what the story's about. Yet he's fighting through Joshua, Moses telling Joshua, Joshua recruiting an army. There are human means. He's going to use people to fight here. But it's a mix, right? He's fighting through us in a way that mixes the natural and the supernatural. And in God's mind, there, there's not such a separation as we often see there. And so as Joshua goes with his recruits, Moses goes up to the mountain, the hill nearby, and he goes there with the staff of God in his hand. Now this is the staff, right? We've seen the staff in the story. The staff represents the authority and power of God himself. Remember, it turned into a, a, a cobra, a snake, and swallowed the, the snakes that Pharaoh and his, his magicians produced. It's the staff that Moses raised to, to initiate the last three plagues, the, heel, the hail, the locusts, and the darkness. Um, this is the staff that Moses used to part the Red Sea and make a way of escape. This represents God's mighty hand in their midst. And so Moses is there and he raises the staff up. And as long as he raises that staff, Israel prevails. But when he lowers it, Amalek prevails. And this is like an all day long battle. So uh, you can't hold your arms up all that long. No matter how strong you might be, you can't keep your arms up all that long. And if you're holding a staff, it's even harder. And so his arms grew tired, and whenever he lowered his arms, the enemy prevailed. Isn't it interesting? This is God at work through the supernatural means of Moses' intercession, yet it depends on Moses' arms, up or down. It's the supernatural and the natural coming together. And it depends on Joshua being there with his, with his troops, but 
if the Lord does not work through these natural means, they, then they're going to lose the battle. So God is working supernaturally through these natural means. It's such an interesting mix, and I think so important to understand. God fights for us, but God usually fights through us. He doesn't have to, but he chooses to do this. It's his chosen means, and, 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 and he does this throughout the earth, and he does it throughout time. He fights for us, and he fights through us. And, and that's how God works. And it's so important to understand that because we like to kind of do one way or the other, right? It's all supernatural. Like, I'm just going to pray and the Amalekites will be gone. Or we tend to lean on ourselves. We're going to get this really great elite army. We're going to go in there. We're going to win this battle on our own. And yet in Scripture, God supernaturally works. We're to depend on him, but we're not to deny the normal means that he uses. He uses people. He uses preparation. He uses our choices, our actions. We're called to respond. Prayer is a picture of that, isn't it? He loves to answer prayer, but he calls us to pray. And yet, even as we pray, it's important for us to understand he's not going to just use our prayers. He is likely to use our actions as well as we trust him, as we do these things. And that's part of this important lesson. You, you guys have heard the story. I've told it before. Uh, I, I imagine you were here, maybe, some of you, about the guy who's caught in a flood, and he's praying for God's deliverance, and he, he just believes that God's going to deliver him. And he's in his house, and the water starts uh, getting higher and higher, and it comes up his front steps, and he's praying, and along comes a fire truck, and they're like, hey, buddy, come on, we, we're here for you. Come on, get on the fire truck. We're going to give you a ride to safety. And he's like, no thanks, I'm praying for God to deliver me. I'm trusting him, I'm good. And so the fire truck moves on, and the water gets higher. Uh, it covers the first floor. He has to go up on the, the porch, uh, and he's sitting there waiting. He's praying that God would deliver him, and a, and a guy comes by in a, in a rowboat. He's like, hey, come on, hop in the boat. I, you know, I got a rescue for you. And he's like, no thanks, I'm waiting on God. I'm praying that God's going to deliver me, and and, and so the boat moves on, and the water gets higher, he, and he has to go up on the roof. And the helicopter comes along and drops the, the ladder, like, through the megaphone. Go, get on the ladder. We got to, you can go to safety. He's like, no, thank you. I'm waiting for the Lord to deliver me. And the water comes up, and he's swept away in the flood. He, he drowns, and he's before the Lord. And he says, Lord, what happened? I, I asked for you to, your deliverance. What, what, did, what was going on? And the Lord said, well I, well, I sent you a fire truck and a rowboat and a, and a helicopter. What else did you want? And, and funny story, but it's a picture. It's a picture of the reality that God works through natural and supernatural means. He fights for us, but he fights through us. And this is really helpful, I think. This, this story is good for us in any situation, but in this crisis, this current crisis, I think it's very instructive. We need to know that God fights for us. We need to, to stand on that. We need to put our confidence in him, but we also need to know that he fights through us. He's going to use us to do his work in one another's lives and in our neighbor's lives. And, and maybe if we're in the medical field, he's going to use our ability to care for people. If you're in the research field, maybe he'll use you to, to come up with a vaccine. He's going to use us. He's going to fight through us. We need to know that he uses both. We need to lift up our voices in prayer, but also practice good hygiene. We need to be in the word of God we also need to be in our homes. We need to ask for supernatural deliverance from the virus, but we also need him to work through medical research to grant a medical cure. We need to pray for one another, but we also need to show up at Zoom meetings and get online and get on the phone and text and stay connected. 
We need to trust God to provide financially for us, but we also need to give to the Benevolence Fund so our church can help meet people who are in dire need. We need to pray for the pastors and leaders in our church in this time where there's so many different things going on that we need to care for and lead our church, but we also need to get involved and serve on teams, as many of you already are doing. He will fight for us, but he also will fight through us. And as I wrote, was writing this and thinking about it this week, I, I just had a, a burden for our younger generation. And I just, as a side, want to speak to our younger generation. Um, in the story, we see Joshua. He's a major figure in the story, and I, I think it's not without purpose. Joshua is a young man, and he is now stepping up to take responsibility to actually lead the army. And, and Moses had been the guy. And it might have been easy for Joshua to say, well, Moses, you're the guy. But, but God had a role for Joshua. And I believe that God is calling many of you young people, high school age and, and older, 20s and maybe 30-somethings, to be Joshua's during this time of crisis. Uh, perhaps you need to stop waiting for Moses to get the job done, um, though he has a job to do, but to step up and serve and to even take center stage in, in God's plan for this time. Don't allow yourself to be defined by negative views of young people that are out there, but hear God's call to step up and be part of the solution. I would love to see God use this crisis to raise up this next generation in a prominent way in our church and beyond in other churches and throughout the country as well. And so let me encourage you to hear God's call. Let me encourage you to get involved. Um, I'd love to see more young people on our next churchwide prayer Zoom call on Thursday nights at 7.30 than the, than the older people. And I don't do that to make you feel guilty. I do that because I want to encourage you and inspire you to hear God's call for you to play your part as a Joshua in this current fight. Well, finally, in this passage, we learn that God fights and he wins. He fights and he wins, and that's how this ends. Uh, this passage speaks of Joshua overwhelming the Amalekites. Uh, Moses is able to hold his arms up because he's tired. His arms would fall, but he sits down, and, and Aaron on one side and her on the other hold his arms up. He's able to hold that staff up until nightfall, and Joshua overwhelms Amalek and all the forces. And then Moses speaks of, of the response here uh, that, that God would blot out the name of Amalek. And so this is about a total victory against these enemies, these brutal enemies, that God would take care of them all. He wants Joshua to, to hear this. He gives instruction uh, to Joshua in, in this to, to remember this. And, and the point is, for the sake of emphasis, that this victory is a total victory. It isn't a partial victory. It isn't that God's going to allow the Malachites to you know, win a partial victory or lose a lose a partial defeat in some way and come back and keep on harassing them. No, it's, it's about total victory. Uh, and so God fights for us and he wins. That's the point here. And at the end, Moses wants to raise a banner. He wants to set up a banner, um, a memorial, an altar for what the Lord has done. And he says, the Lord is my banner in verse, in verse uh, 15. The Lord is my banner. The Lord is my, the one I celebrate and remember. See, God fights for us and wins. This isn't pie-in-the-sky stuff. This isn't just wishful thinking. God fights for us and wins. He's certainly won in overcoming sin and death through his death and resurrection. He has won, and he will finish this victory. It, it's going to be a complete victory. There will come a time not that far away 
And in, in times like this, it feels even closer. Not that far away where Christ will return and vanquish all his enemies. Revelation 20 speaks about this. And it says, When the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from prison and will come out to deceive the nations. They're at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their numbers like the sand of the sea. So again, the enemies are going to reassert themselves against God and his people. And it says, And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints in the beloved city. So a picture of God's people. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beasts and the false prophets were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. The victory will be complete. There will be a final battle, and Christ will come and vanquish the enemy, and the, the enemy will be annihilated and eternally be no enemies left, not a single one, no demons, no evil alliance, no more sin, no more sickness, no more death. There will be peace forever. The victory will be complete, it says later in Revelation. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. This is the complete victory he has for us. And Moses' example of saying the Lord is our banner is an example for us to celebrate what he has done. It's interesting that Moses says the Lord is my banner. He uses my banner, so it's personalized. The Lord is my banner. But it's interesting that God is the banner, right? Because usually banners are like things, right? They're like pieces of cloth, right? Um, and we may not, well, you might have banners in your room. I, there are things like that that we use. So I, I think of like the Pittsburgh Steelers have their terrible towels. I don't quite get that. Sorry if you're a Steelers fan. But, you know, they wave their terrible towels. That's their banner, you know, for the Steelers. And and, um, and there are other, other banners like that, um, that that are usually things like towels that we wave. Actually, uh, we lived in Maryland back in 1994 through 2001. And, and if you're from Maryland, you are very aware of the importance of March 28, 1984. The rest of us probably like, what? That was the day that the Baltimore Colts packed up their moving vans during the night and moved out secretly and abandoned Baltimore, um, the beloved Baltimore Colts. Colts. And... If you talk to people from the Baltimore area, even, even now who were alive then, it, it brings up bitter feelings. But in 2001, after only five season, seasons, the new Baltimore team, the Baltimore Ravens, won the Super Bowl, 31-7 uh, to 7 against the Giants. And you can't imagine, even if you're a New England fan, I haven't seen anything like it, the celebration that was going on. Uh, the flags, the, the Ravens' flags were on every car. You drive down the highway, it's like, it seemed like every car was bedecked with banners to celebrate the Ravens. Now, I'm not saying that we should necessarily do that. Nothing wrong with that. But what I'm saying is it's an illustration of what's going on in this passage. You see, the Lord fights and wins. And so we're to be like Moses. We're to say, the Lord is my banner. He's the one I celebrate. He's the hero. He conquers sin and death. And we don't wave a, a symbol. The cross is a symbol of, of Christianity, but, it, but it, we're not really to wave the cross. We're to wave Jesus. 
We're to celebrate what Jesus has done. We are to, to remember him and we're to wave him and, and remember his death and resurrection. We're to be like Ravens fans, but even more, celebrating that he has overcome sin and death and sadness and sickness, that he fights and wins, that we are to, to wave our banner in, in a time like this, especially. Don't do it obnoxiously, but, but remember, our God fights for us. He fights through us, and he fights and wins, and so celebrate that victory. Find your joy in his victory, his victory both past through the cross and future. There will be a day when there's no more sickness, there's no more pandemics, there's no more strife. There's only peace and goodness and glory forever. That's what he's done. And so we're to wave our banner. We're to remember these things. We're to, to find our own joy and strengthen it. And we're to do it in such a, a way that we're just honestly portraying to a world that needs to have something to celebrate amidst a time like this, that there is a banner to rally to. His name is Jesus Christ. Let's pray.